Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Africa is a Country Talk. I'm Will Shorkey, streaming from very, very cold Johannesburg. The weather is absolutely miserable here in South Africa. And my co-host is Sean Jacobs. He's in Brooklyn, New York, where I can see scenes of summer blooming, and I'm very, very jealous. Uh, AIAC Talk is a weekly talk and interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday at 7 p.m. East African time, 5 p.m. if you're in Dakar or 6 p.m., if you are like me in Johannesburg. And our show is produced as always by Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. So this is episode 41. I'm, I'm amazed that we were still here. On today's, yeah. show, <laughs> on today's show, we went to investigate uh, Senegal's, the politics of Senegal's post-colonial history, especially to grapple with, with it in the context of the ongoing civil unrest um, um, and dissatisfaction with the in incumbent president, Macky Sall. Um, and today we also want to talk about, about the present crisis and its long history. So kind of try to not just focus on the present, but see some, some history there. Um, to suggest perhaps that there's always been a tension between popular uprising and creeping authoritarianism um, in Senegal, and sometimes from, very, from places you wouldn't have thought about if you followed this program. So whether it was Leopold Senghor, Abdullah Wad, uh, or Macky Sall, our guests today are Florian Boba and Maram Gay. Florian is a student in African history and the host of the Elimu podcast. His research focuses on post-colonial liberation struggles and state violence from the 1960s and the 1970s in Senegal. And Maram Gay is an associate professor of African and African diaspora literature at East Carolina University and her work explores gender, verbal art, and migration. And she's also an activist of women's rights in Senegal and its diaspora. And last week, we tackled Africa's long and evolving relationship with Asia. Our guests were Chris Lee, who's a professor of history, Bina Benabdala, who's a political scientist, and Abdul Rahim Lema, who is an IR um, and politics scholar. And that episode is now available on our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our Patreon for all the episodes from our archive, and also you can support our work there more generally. But before we get to our guest today, I think Will has some stuff he wants to celebrate. Well, you know, it's it's always hard to come by good news these days. It's just bad news abounds literally everywhere. So whenever there's any sort of small piece of good news or something to celebrate, you know, we have to seize it. and. In Latin America, they're always the ones who are producing all of the good news. And obviously today, if people have been paying attention to news reports, uh, we're getting the latest from Peru, which is that in the presidential runoff between Pedro Castillo, who is this very kind of ordinary looking high school teacher that is running for president. He's got very socialist beliefs. He wants to transform Peru's economy, which has been governed by an elite which has implemented neoliberal austerity like they have in other parts of the world is running against this uh, woman, Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, who was literally so a fascist libertarian for, for 10 years um, and is now in prison uh, for a whole bunch of charges, including corruption and war crimes. She's also had a number of stints in jail for corruption. So Peruvians were making a choice between this man who's promising change, who's sort of framed 
the, the polarity in Peruvian society is being between the rich and the poor and the master and the slave, to use his own words, and running against this woman who's, you know, quite literally, you know, a fascist. And and at this stage, look, it's looking like he might win. Of course, um, one cannot rule out the possibility that if he does win, then Kego Fujimori and her crew are going to try and do something like stage a coup. A lot of the Peruvian elite is very worried about a possible Castillo victory. There were reports last week that a lot of business people and the extremely wealthy are redirecting a lot of their capital offshore. So there's been massive capital flight at the prospects of his victory. But I think if he does win, it'll be another country in, in Latin America that is showing how the possibility of a transformative politics is still possible um, in the world today. And, you know, not so far away in Chile, just as a quick mention, uh, you know, we've mentioned how Chile has been undergoing this process to try and rewrite their constitution. After the brutal dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, Chile kept the same constitution that Pinochet put into place. So after massive protests in September 2019, uh, the Pinera government conceded uh, a plebiscite to vote on whether or not the constitution should be changed. A majority of Chileans, over 90%, voted in favor. And in May, elections for the constituents assembly, the actual group that's going to rewrite the constitution took place. And it was a big showing for the left. Um, the center-right and center-left candidates performed really poorly. And the people that have done the best have been the social movements, the grassroots organizations, the communists. So it's looking like whatever constitution is produced from this process is going to be a very thoroughgoing rewriting of Chilean society. Um, so we look forward to that. And you know, the rest of us need to figure out what we're doing wrong and try and get our act together. And of course, as we talk about these movements for democratization, whether it's electing these candidates that want to unseat the power of the ruling class uh, and these movements for dem democratization in Chile, um, it's it's as best uh, a context or, or 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 thing to discuss just before we talk about Senegal and how Senegalese people are trying to democratize their country, which has been facing similar problems. Um, so yeah, let's let's get going on on our on the episode today. Um, and before we do, uh, I think Sean is on. Oh, on I'm mute. Sorry, no, I was just gonna say um, this is my problem. I always start badly with the mute. Um, I was just going to say, I think it's always fascinating that Africans never look to or don't often like make those connections, like look to South America, because I think often that's where some of the most interesting politics, which often gets dismissed as populism. Because yeah. And if you go on Twitter, you have the usual North American debate where they try to make these movements in their own image. So if it doesn't look like the DSA, uh, if it doesn't look like some North American um, political organization, therefore we cannot support it. So almost by default, they end up they end up kind of endorsing the status quo because they're afraid um, of what you know what could happen. But I, as as I said, I'm always I'm always fascinated. To, yeah. One thing to say about that very quickly, and it's interesting exactly as you say that you know Africans uh, don't look to Southern America as a point of inspiration. Obviously, that's exaggerating. Some people do, but generally, we often look to the West 
as our Archimedean point. But you know what Land America demonstrates, and we've made this point before, is that it, how do you bring together a left-wing coalition of not only trade unions and the labor movement, but also social movements rooted in fighting for land rights against mining companies, um, all of these different struggles that people in the developing world face. How do you bring together peasants? Identity politics. Some of the movements I think that are, that are sort of coalescing around Castillo include like uh, indigenous rights. So just people yeah. hope about culture, like being culturally trampled on in Peru, uh, you know, that the, the Fujimori government or the various right-wing governments um, have no time for people's traditions. So how do you how do you figure out how to build those coalitions? Because the left can often be very dismissive of 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 people's traditions and who people are or how people identify. But in any case, we have a, a good case to talk about today, which is that kind of complicated that kind of complicated case. I think I remember one time we had a we had a piece by um, I'm gonna butcher his name uh, Suleiman uh, Tainye, who I Bashir Bashir Dian, yeah, who's at yeah. Columbia. And we had a piece, uh, an interview with him that we published, and it was something about uh, is Islam, uh, uh, is Islam, does Islam make sense with Marxism? And he kind of looked at the case of Senegal. So it, is, it just so happens that we're talking <laughs> Senegal today. So we don't want to hold people, we want to get to the program. But before I do that, just a quick shout out again. Remember to follow us on YouTube, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Go to our website, subscribe to our Patreon um, for all the previous episodes of this series from the archive. And also there you can uh, support our work in general. So to today's program then, as we said, uh, we have two guests. Um, and our first guest um, uh, is uh, Madame Gay, who is an associate professor of African and African diaspora literatures at East Carolina University. And as I said before, her, her work explores gender, verbal art, and migration. She's also an activist of women's rights in Senegal um, and its diaspora. So, Madame, welcome to the program. Oh, there you are. Perfect. Hello. Great to see you. Um, just by way of introduction, um, can you tell us just a little bit about your research? Because we, we, we often forget that the reason we bring people on to talk about particular kinds of things, but we never ask them, like, what do you, what do you work on? So just by way of introduction, what, tell us a bit about your research. Well, well I worked on um, first um, women's wedding songs and I looked at how women find voice and space through verbal art. So I looked at the wedding songs of the Wolof and how women use it out of space because African women have always been said to be voiceless. So that was uh, my dissertation actually, which was broken into several chapters and articles. And then later I worked on um, hip hop and social change. So I actually wrote a seminal article on Yana Ma which has been used a lot in the field. And uh, currently I'm working on a project, it's a book project called Discourses of Wifing. So I'm looking at how terms related to um, spousal duties have been corrupted due to uh, several factors such as uh, globalization, um, French colonization, but also uh, a corrupted interpretation of Islam. And uh, on the other end, I'm also the co-founder of a group uh, called In Senegalese aux Etats-Unis, a Senegalese woman in the U.S. And we are 3,200 women who are from Senegal living in the U.S. 
and I that's where I do most of my activism. And I'm also a member of many activist groups uh, in Senegal, mainly feminist groups. Well, it sounds like you're up to a lot of fascinating research studies. Right? I want to read your. Yeah, I mean, I want to read your your <laughs> your work on on wedding songs, but I think it's interesting you mentioned you've researched groups like Yenemar, and we're going to get to them in a moment, as well as all of these other groups that you're active in in Senegal at the moment. So maybe for a very broad question, we know. Like, my internet you... is very spotty, so I didn't hear everything you said. No worries, no worries. I, I was I was about to ask okay. you, could you maybe help us understand what the political environment in Senegal is like right now? These groups like NMR and the ones you're involved with, what political environment are they operating in? Uh, I'm not following them that much uh, these days, but I think that um, the last time I heard about NMR and um, what it's doing is doing their events around March 4th when um, people were protesting and then several people get killed by the police. Um, that was the un unrest related to the accusation of rape of a um, political opposition leader, Usman Sonko. Um, but uh, from the perspective of the feminist group where I am um, active, it seems like women, and I think so many of you have seen it in my Washington Post piece, women's bodies have are being used as a political battleground where women are really caught in the middle of a fight between men because i think that currently in senegal I mean, i'm going to be bold and say that women's issues are not taken seriously um so everything is politicized and that's literally what we talk about among the feminist groups that i am involved in how to make women's rights visible in Senegal and taken seriously by the government and not women not be used as tokens uh, to serve political ambitions. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, so one of the, the, the figure that a lot of the attention regarding these the protests of March, or if you want the dissatisfaction in Senegal, is with, with Macky Sall, who is the, the current, I would say he's the, since independence, he's the fourth president of Senegal. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He got elected, I mean, it sounds like very recently he got re-elected in, in 2019 and the next presidential elections are only scheduled for 2024, but he's, he seems mm -hmm. to be very popular. 2019. 20, 2019 he got elected, but the next election, yeah. right, only in 2024, I'm saying. So, but it seems he's very popular, like, it, it's almost like people can't wait for him to go. Um, why do you, I mean, how would you, how would you, you just kind of assess his time in power? Um, I think that Macky Sall, uh, from the perspective of the youth, Macky Sall is a disappointment in the sense that in, we have to go back to 2012 when he was um, running against Abdullah Iwad. And uh, Yanama was really central to Macky Sall being elected because they are the ones who rally people through their art and through their activism to get him elected, literally. Because if we remember properly, Abdullah Wadu was trying to run for a third term. And the young people behind Yanama um, rose up and then said, no, enough is enough. And you know they have so many songs. There's even a song that's called Enough is Enough. And uh, literally, they are the ones who helped, let's say that, in 
with quotation, Macky Sall uh, get in power. And Macky Sall had so many promises to the youth, but then once Macky Sall arrived in power, nothing changed. Actually, things seem to have gotten worse for the young people. Unemployment is really rampant. Um, education has gone down, literally. Uh, healthcare system, so many problems in Senegal so that everybody is like a disillusionment in, in, in among the youth especially. And it seems like everybody wants him to go. And then we have the rise of Usman Sonko in the past few years who run in 2019 and for the first time as a newly new um, party that actually was able to to have so much support and then even have some representation in government. So young people saw in him, in him so much hope and he rose, I would say, in the heels of uh, what we call the Obama uh, syndrome. And uh, lots of people have so much hope for, uh, you know, who, what he represents so far. So it's, it's interesting because you've just described for us how, you know, Yen Mar was instrumental in getting Macky Sall elected. And now mm -hmm. a lot of Senegalese politics and economic program hasn't really changed much. So this time around, when we think of the protests that happened in March, uh, where has Yen Mar been? What is the perspective of young people? Are they part of the mobilization to put pressure on him? Or have they been absent? Basically, can I just on, on, on Makisal? Yeah, I would. I just wanted to okay. add to that. So, is it that in this case? So before, with with Yanamar and when 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 Maki came to power the first time, they were kind of at the center of it. This this protest from that happened in March, and I would, I would, I'm asking this, and since then. It, it sounds like, is Yanamar still kind of the major social movement driving them? Or do we have now a case in which people are are attaching their hopes now to Usman Sonko? So yes. he's taking- um, Yanamar Yen Yen was at the, in the protest, they were protesting, but this was driven by what we call the Sonkoist, Sonkoist or uh, the, the Patriots. The, they call themselves mm -hmm. the Patriots behind Usman Sonko. So they were the ones that were actually driving this protest because their leader was arrested on his way to answer to a summons. But Yanama also was in the street because they were thinking that this was Macky Sall's way to orchestrate something against Usman Sonko and they wanted to protect the democracy. So there are so many things, so many layers here um, at play. And then you have the general frustration against Macky Sall's regime. And then you also, also have to put it in the context of the COVID-19 restrictions and then the impact it has on the economy of the country and even people's mobility, so to say. So if you if you look at anywhere in the world, protests could be like a way for people to come out of their houses where they have been for so long. And then you have a country that is struggling economically, then of course, people are frustrated. And then this looks like such, so much that was in the Pandora's box that literally just spilled mm. out. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's when we think of, you know, Macky Sall as all of this general frustration, you've said that built up when he, he, he ousted Abdullah, Abdul Wad, right? And mm -hmm. um, he came into power promising to be this massive reformer. He had this thoroughgoing mm -hmm. program called uh, the Path to Progress, I think it was referred to, and he wanted to sort of 
make Senegal an efficient democracy uh, and social injustice. So these very radical sounding policies. Um, and yes. as we know now, given these protests that have happened, none of this has really come to, to fruition. So mm -hmm. I'm curious in terms of how is he managing that in terms of what he's promised and how little he's been able to deliver? Is there still time for him to deliver on the second term, given that he only uh, was reelected in 2019? Um, and would his successor possibly do any better? Well, prior to 2019, he had already done seven years. Uh, not yeah. So he came in 12, 2012. And first of all, um, the term was five years, and now it's seven years, uh, and then back to five years. So I think uh, that shows uh, literally the promises that were broken. But at the same time, all these promises have not been implemented um, at the levels where people uh, could see, it, so to say. So there is again, and I, and I don't think that it would be fair to accuse him of creating this kind of elite. There is like the gap between the have and have not in Senegal have been widening even before him, uh, especially during the time of Abdullah Wad. Abdullah Wad is accused of having created this nouveau rich, these new rich people in Senegal. And also uh, lots of people in um, have been making so much money through real estate in the sense that if, if you have been in Dakar, you see how Dakar is really expensive. It's like Dakar is under construction throughout like the this past few years building a mushroom from everywhere and uh you can see the the kinds of cars that people drive as and then you see like right across the street such um chronic poverty across the street from lavish uh um lavish lifestyles so it would be unfair to accuse makisal of that but what makisal has done is widen the gap by not implementing all the promises that he has had, especially when it came to young people. I mean, when we're talking about young people, we're talking about education. If you go to the University of Dakar, which used to be the premier university in Africa, you could see that students, there are so many students, students are having a hard time even getting to have a seat in the classrooms or even go through a whole um, academic year of studies or the professors are, are also unhappy. So there's so much going on. Um, life, life is very expensive in Senegal right now. The, the, the average Senegal, Senegalese cannot really afford anything uh, uh, based on the fact that salaries have not, not increased, but then um, the cost of living is really, really high. Um, and then Macky Sall has been accused of being a kind of president that doesn't listen to people. They seem to, he seems to live in his own ivory tower and then the people are at the bottom. So there is like a big um, gap between Macky Sall and, and, and um, population, so to say. So if you, all you have to do is go to Facebook and look at his page. Once he's post something, people are so angry that 90% of the, the messages are insults and Call for him to step down. <laughs> I, I, so, just as a kind of related question to that, I, th this you know, when when you when you're trying to kind of make sense of the current regime in Senegal, when people say an accusation like, and you see this on the internet that they are authoritarian, like mm -hmm. how? I mean, it's a democracy. Like, what do you say to that kind of that kind of characterization of of Sall's government? That it's authoritarian. Well, do you think that's just wild? That's just a wild throwout thing. Or do you think that's like? I, I, I don't think so. I don't 
don't think so. I think Senegal has been known to be a country where freedom of speech actually existed. But since the arrival of Macky Sall, people have to watch what they're saying. Even now, you say on, on social media, you see he had imprisoned lots of people who were vocal on social media criticizing him. You have the imprisonment of Guy Marisania. You have the, uh, the, the imprisonment of the former mayor of Dakar. You have so many other people and, you know, who uh, actually have been in prison. I mean, whether this is, um, the whatever they were accused of is true or not, there is a long list of people who have been jailed because they have criticized Macky Sall in public. So obviously then that accusation is not 100% false, um, so to say. And it's because of that, that when Usman Sonko was accused of being, um, of, of having raped someone, a, a, a young woman, Everybody thought that Masal was behind behind him because Usman Sonko is his most robust opposant um, in 2024, and hence he wants to eliminate the eliminate him the same way that he has eliminated the the, the former mayor of Dakar, um, who also was mm. running for presidency. Mm-hmm. And while we think of whether or not he's authoritarian, something I was kind of um, surprised to discover actually is that. Local elections, which were staged to take place in March, were postponed for the third time, I think. Um, and they were originally actually supposed to happen in, in, in 2019. So they've been postponed on three occasions. So is, there, is that significant? I mean, when it comes to Senegal's political system, how important are local elections? Do you anticipate that local elections being postponed repeatedly might become a sort of flashpoint for future conflicts and future unrest, or might it just go under the carpet? Oh, definitely. I and mean, I think that um, it's not only about Macky Sall, it's also about all the other people around him and people who might also get some kind of clout who are using local elections to place themselves within strategic positions. So if those elections are postponed over and over and over, people can see that well, this is leading up to the big election where we're, we're having people trying to manipulate these local elections to get um, some kind of advantage during the, the presidential elections. I think that uh, it's obvious that people will react that way. Whether it is, be, it is being um, postponed because of COVID or not, it doesn't sound really good because Senegal is still functioning as if COVID doesn't exist. So many other things are happening. So why are we postponing the election and not other things? Mm-hmm. Um, so just, just to before before we, we have one, we have two other questions. The one question I'm actually curious about is in order to govern, I understand in Senegal, and you can correct me, that to some level you do need the support of you know certain kind of traditional forms of authority or religious authority. And I did notice when I went back, just kind of looking at the protests in March, at one point, um, Sonko was talking about Sal, Maki Sal wanting to have a third term. And one of the threats he made was to say, if, if Maki Sal doesn't step down, or, or not step, sorry, if Maki Sal really goes through with this thing about a third term, then I'm going mm-hmm. to ask the religious authorities to step in and kind of, and, you know, stop this, like stop myself from yeah. getting the term. Can you talk yeah. about just a little bit about what is the role of the religious authority 
um, or religious authorities or, or religion, both in, on the one hand, the maintenance of power of the Senegalese state, like the state, or of the whoever's in power, whatever party's in power, and at the same time, does it also play a role in, in protest, in, if you want, kind of questioning okay. power and the mining regime, yeah. Yeah, um, all of you know that Senegal is 93% Muslim. Uh, mm -hmm. We also have a, a, a Christian minority who usually doesn't get involved in politics. But when it comes to the Muslim religious leaders, they do get involved, and especially since in the past, and Senghor had understood that for a long time when, even though he was Christian, he had a really good relationship with the Muslim religious leaders, and uh, many of them actually had pledged pledge allegiance to him in the past during elections. And during Abdujuf's time or during Abdullah's time, any president who came had to literally um, Palicate religious leaders, so to say, so that they can be behind them. And in the past, we've had religious leaders who actually call their followers and say, I want to vote for so and so. Like, if you um, believe in me or believe in, believe in my spiritual power, you need to vote for so and so. So, we have that history in Senegal, but we also have the cloud that religious leaders have on the population itself in the terms of authority. So, that when the religious leaders ask for peace, people have to. Uh, Apply, so to say. So we've seen that a presidents and, 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 and other uh, officials, political officials, have used that to literally stop strikes, for example, or civil disrest by going and calling on the religious leaders to come out and, 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 and speak. And that's what happened also um, in March when religious leaders came literally to break the fight and ask for peace. So there was a truce that happened based on uh some kind of lobbying by religious leaders um who called on makisal to to um call for the, the police to stop actually shooting on people and all of that you also had uh women who contributed in that way by peacefully marching but that also was put in the back burner but religious leaders role was put at the front because that's how it works in Senegal. I mean, there is like, a, there's not only the patriarchy, but also there's a democracy, and then you also have the cloud of religion, which is very heavy in Senegal. And, and on that, this idea that religious authority was forefronted and the efforts of ordinary women weren't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're gonna talk to Florian right now, and we hope that you stick around for, for some of that. But when thinking of Senegalese politics, would you say that it's always had this kind of authoritarian undercurrent. So earlier, you spoke of Macky Sall as being this guy who's out of touch. He sits on his ivory tower. And is it the case that it's the political elites, the religious leaders who sit on their ivory towers and are completely out of touch with what the people want and need and who think that government should happen by their dictation rather than the people expressing their will? Yeah. I mean, you you can see that the young people, not only are they angry because they don't have the prospect of dignified life in Senegal, based on the fact that education is really crumbling down, there is no uh, prospect of employment, you have the migration issue where young people board boats to go to Europe and all of that. So there's a lot of struggle for young people. On top of that, 
uh, political officials come out and literally insult them. They literally insult them, calling them thugs, calling them people who really have no 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 manners, and and and, and also there is this kind of disdain of of the people of the young people, and I think that uh, that is one of the biggest problems in Senegal where politicians want they promise something and when they come to power then not only do they deliver but they become really arrogant toward the people who elected them thank you so much Maham. i mean this is all fascinating and we we want to connect it with our discussion with florian so hopefully you stick around for for that but we want to bring on our final guest right now who's florian Bobin. florian as we said at the beginning of the program, is a student in African history and the host of the Elimu podcast. His research focuses on post-colonial liberation struggles and state violence from the 1960s and 70s in Senegal. So Florian, before we hear what you think of a lot of what Mahram just said, maybe you could just tell the audience what your research is about. Yes, so thank you for having me on the show. Um, so my research, as you as you mentioned, focuses on liberation struggles and state violence um, in the post-colonial era, if we can call it that way, uh, meaning 1960s, 70s, obviously some of the 1950s, uh, which represents and which um, is the, the the presidency under the time of uh, Leopold Sedar Sango. Um, so that's what I, I focus on. Uh, I entered these research, this research through uh, the window of Umar Blonadjupin's story, um, who uh, really, that uh, it's a story that really uh, arose an incredible interest in me. Um, and I realized that there was uh, quite little literature on him. Um, and so I decided to undertake biographical research on him. Um, it's been over three years now. And through him, I started researching uh, the, the story and the history of, of liberation struggles and, and state violence. Um, sorry for, I'm still looking at the, at the Blondin image. Um, you've listened to, to Maram. Can you, how do you read, uh, we want to wanna go back to Senghor in a minute, but how do you read the current political crises, if you want, or current political developments in, in Senegal? I mean, what is your sort of, and again, we don't have lots of time, but if you had like four or five minutes and you could break it down. Well, right. Well, um, I wrote a piece in Africa as a country a few days after the, the start of the protests um, called Beware of Martyrs. Um, and I, I was struck by the uh, intensity of violence in the way that the, the regime responded to the protests. And to a certain extent, obviously, the context has changed, but also to some of the the um, the, the 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 claims and and the prospects the hopes of, of a youth that feels totally disenfranchised um and there have been uh two you know and this is this is how senegal usually is portrayed in international uh in the international narrative around uh africa being a country and in this case uh senegal being one of its uh exceptions linked to democracy um there were two peaceful transfers of power in in 2000 between Abdou Diouf, the successor, uh, the heir of uh, uh, Le Sadar Senghor, and in 2012 uh, between Ablaywad and Makisal. And so th this is usually put forward as because there was a peaceful transition, it means that there was also um, a change in power. But in effect, 
uh, although different powers, you know, Senghor put himself forward as a socialist. Abdujouf was was the continuation of Senghor's rule through multi-party system. Abdelawad was liberal, and Makisal, who partook in in uh, Maoist um, movements in the 1980s, uh, is is uh, a successor to. Uh, Abdelaywad because he, you know, he, he was his former prime minister. He was president of the National Assembly and minister of Abdelaywad, and so there's this this clear continuation between Senghor and Macky Sall through different contexts. Um, 1980s and the structural adjustment programs went through the, um, you know, the the 2000s as well, and it's this whole narrative around Africa rising in 2010s. Um, but in effect, in the methods. Um, there's there's a direct continuation from Senghor's rule. Uh, we see it in the way that you know the regime repressed the the protests, um, the way that the the Dakar prefect called to charge uh, the protesters, including the media and everyone. That's what he said. Let's charge everyone. Uh, that was caught on tape. Uh, you know, throughout February before uh, March third, and then the big uh, the, the the splash. Let's say that that Sonko's arrest uh, represented um, every day. There would be political dissidents or through different uh, uh, movements from the from um, civil society. And so we see these methods um, being perpetuated, uh, a discourse changing, but in effect, um, there, there was a, 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 let's say, a relative democratic opening in the 1980s. But to, to know, ask you... Now, I wanna I wanna ask you about about the 1980s actually, uh, and to ask about Leopold Senghor. I mean, you've you've written a piece in AIAC before, and you know the bold deck of that piece, which I think a lot of people would be surprised by, is you say that once you've exhausted all the negritude quotes, you have to confront the fact that Leopold Sadar Senghor ran Senegal as a repressive one-party state, and I think you know we've. We've kind of mythologized Senghor, and a lot of people aren't really attuned to this aspect of his his rule and leadership. So, how would you break that down? Yeah. Um, so, Senghor is is mythified um, both in Senegal, although that myth is being confronted and is being um, progressively debunked, but also in, in, in a very extreme way in that, you know, Sango is associated as, as almost the devil incarnate. Um, but that is also linked to the fact, as I said, that he, there, there is this myth that was created around Sango um, because he had um, moderate positions internationally, uh, because he was a poet, um, and he was recognized as spearheading the Negritude movement in the 1930s, and, and uh, chaining, you know, black liberation within a French context, calling for equality, which doesn't mean decolonization in, uh, in on the continent, um, and because he was portrayed as, um, you know, more uh, sensible um, in the context of other one-party states. But in effect, when you look at his political action beyond his poetry, uh, you see that uh, the uh, progressive Senegalese Union, UPS, Senegalese, uh, was a one-party state. Uh, it repressed opponents. It didn't allow, it, it dissolved um, successively all of you know the, the dissident political parties, like that of Charente Djoup, the Front National Senegalese, uh, the National Senegalese Front, and the Bloc des Masses Senegalese, the Senegalese massive, uh, Masses Bloc. Um, and incorporated those that um, you know were opposing Senghor's rule, while being a little more moderate, 
towards the end, um, use torture as as a tool of, of surveillance in prisons, um, leading to the deaths of some like Omar Pronajup, uh, dissolved uh, trade unions and um, those political movements that were forced into uh, underground. Um, so in effect, if you look at his policy, um, that, 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 that is the reality of what would happen, even in, in the term of his rule, you know, there's a clear continuation in the 1980s with a different framework of, you know, the new liberal revolution with the structural adjustment plans. But in, in 1976, so uh, over four years before he, uh, he uh, stood, stood down, um, he changed the constitution to allow the prime minister um, a position he had revoked um, by imprisoning Mamadouja and his sympathizers that he had then reinstated in 1970. He changed the constitution um, to allow the prime minister to be the uh, uh, successor to uh, the president in, in case he were to step down, which he did in 1980. Um, just, so just, I just want to clarify something if people are listening and they're wondering if you are making this claim. And I'll, and I'll say the claim. Why is negritude a way of providing cover for his authoritarianism? So are you making that as part of your claim? I mean, we have other questions, but just can you just kind of answer that? Um, so it depends if you're talking about negritude in the 1930s from negritude in the 1960s. I don't believe that negritude in the 1930s was part of a, a, a wider scheme of him knowing that he'd come to power 30 years later. Um, he actually, as he, the, the expression goes, um, he fell into politics in the mid-1940s. Um, he was a poet, you know, uh, as of the 1930s. He was a professor of French in France. He was, um, he was recognized as, as, as an artist and as an advocate for uh, Africans' rights in France in the 1930s. If you fast forward to 1960, um, so 30 years later, uh, Negritude became a state narrative um, which now we refer to 1966, for instance, as the great year where the Festival Mondial des Arts Negres, so the World um, Festival of Black Arts, uh, took place. You know, Duke Ellington and these these extraordinary um, African and uh, Black diasporic uh, artists came and celebrated Black cultures and African cultures, and and that that's a reality in 1966. But if you look just a month or two before. Uh, the uh, that festival, that international festival, was hold, was held. Um, Sagol's regime uh, proceeded to uh, uh, massive um, uh, repression on political opponents because he didn't want for people coming into his country uh, to, uh, to to witness the fact that uh, Senegal was a repressive state and that Senghor at the, t at, the, at the head of it uh, was, was, maneuver was maneuvering that. Um, and so Negritude became the state narrative in the 1960s um, to cover, yes, Senegal's authoritarianism. Um, and if you just even take a look at Jimézé, who is one of the great Negritude uh, um, spearheaders as well, when Omar Blondinjou uh, died in prison in 1973, Emile broke his, um, decided to stop having a relationship with Senghor for a few years until I think 1976, when then uh, visited Martinique and they made peace. But, you know, it, it and even Léon Gontran Damas, the, the third prominent artist within the Nietzsche movement was very, very critical of Senghor as a head of state. So it's interesting when you we speak about how 
in the 19 in the mid 1960s this campaign of repression of political opponents started to begin and we mentioned his name earlier uh Mamadou Dia he was one of those political opponents and the split Senghor had with Dia do you think that what was really sort of noteworthy about that is that it reflected the two different competing visions the two had for the country so Dia on the one hand he wanted to sort of have a more socialist minded modern state without the muslim marabouts as middlemen between the government and peasants whereas Senghor wanted to maintain and enhance the connection with the marabouts as intermediaries and to strengthen french interests in senegal so could you talk to us about that split that he had with with Jia and how it sort of encapsulated different potential post-colonial visions for for senegal and can i just can i just add to that is there a way in which that split gets reproduced. In other words, does the does the Senghor vision of how to govern, which is the point I asked Maram earlier about the role of kind of religious authority, that then whoever comes after Senghor, just kind of that's the way they govern. Because mm. the DI one was too radical to, to, to implement. Right. Um, I, I do believe that the split between Senghor and Dia was absolutely decisive in the way that the Senegalese state structured itself and the path that it it, um, it paved for for other presidents and Senghor's authoritarian, authoritarian. So I've, I've got a little noise around. I'm just going to close the window. Um, but yes, um, to go back to we, do that, we do that on this program where people have to close windows and so on. <laughs> Yeah, well, Maram, Maram was talking earlier about how Dakar is under construction. There's there's excessive construction all the time, so that was part of it. Um, but yes, uh, to go back, I think um, to go to understand 1962, we've got to go back at least to 1958, if not before. But um, let's go back to 1958 just to understand better. Uh, Senghor really pulled Mamadouja into politics in 1948 when they created their their. Um, political party, Mamadou was really, really um, uh, hesitant uh, to joining politics, but Senghor uh, convinced him to, to do that. If you um, fast forward 10 years, in 1958, it's, there's this famous referendum uh, to choose to, to decide on the fate of African colonies within the French Empire, um, calling for a community between France on the one hand and its African colonies. Um, which, which actually paved the way for the French Fifth Republic um, in a context of the Algerian War for Independence. And so Mamadouja and their party, the Progressive Senegalese Union, um, had uh, decided on a common accord that they would vote no um, and that they would decide not to enter this community, which would therefore mean that they would take independence in 1958 instead of what happened two years later. Um, in the end, a few months before the vote, um, after you know the, the the party had taken a common decision that they would vote no, uh, Senghor decided after uh, a promise he had made to two members of the French government, uh, namely Michel Debré um, and uh, Pompidou, um, Georges Pompidou, who would later become French president and with, with whom Senghor would have uh, very close ties, um, he decided that they would not vote. For no, and therefore they would they would allow and they would support the French community. Um, if fast forward a few uh, few months later, in the end, Guinea became the same country 
under Sekutubu to vote for no and therefore to uh, obtain its independence in 1958. Um, Mamadou Dja was really upset by that decision uh, because uh, it came as a last minute warning and um, he, took, he took that upon himself. Now, 1960, independence is signed because that's how um, the French Empire and the French state rather um, uh, implemented its independence through uh, accord agreement to transfer powers, which was uh, annexed a, a, a whole set of uh, all of these agreements for quote unquote cooperation, which in effect allowed the French state to have uh, a close eye, if not actually leading, you know, uh, former French colonies, uh, monetary policy through the France CFA, uh, politics through political advisors, um, cultural uh, policy through all of these uh, cooperants, as they were called, military strategy as well through uh, uh, very uh, strategic military bases, etc., etc. Educational as well, uh, until the late 60s, the main university of, of West Africa, which was the University of Dakar, uh, was still led by a French um, uh, director and you know, with, with most of the, the press professors being French. So all that to say that um, France already had a hold uh, from the very beginnings of independence, uh, which would, uh, in a system that would later be coined as France-Afrique, um, meaning the, the new colonial imperatives structured around independence and independence not being the end of the colonial rule, but independence uh, merely be, being uh, a, a different stage enabling uh, a new colonial uh, status quo. Um, so 1960, um, Senegal and Mali, then called Sudan, French Sudan, um, were one of the two only well, actually the two countries, um, the two only countries within the French uh, Empire in, in Africa uh, to opt for a federation. Uh, they did that initially was supposed to be with Bina and uh, Burkina Faso, then known as Daume and Odvolta, Upper Volta. Um, that with French interference, Ivorian interference as well. Uh, the 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 two the two countries I I, I quoted were uh, decided to to split. In the end, it was only Senegal and Mali. And after just a few months, in between uh, Senegal, Modibo Keita, Mamadou Dia, there were internal dissensions, um, and and they decided to 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 split. Um, that was a second missed opportunity. Now the third one, which is the one that we we referred to, being the uh, arrests of Mamadou Dia and his sympathizers. Um, I would say um, represented the, the one of the last opportunities to really um, uh, seek for liberation from uh, French stronghold in Senegal um, through Mamadou Dia's um, policies uh, regarding uh, peasant communities, empowering them um, through systems of what were called cooperatives, um, uh, also denouncing French presence, um, supporting Algeria and its work on independence. Um, and that had um, ripple effects. It had, uh, it met opposition as well uh, within the French state, as well as within uh, the Senegalese apparatus, especially those who were closer to Senegal. And what we must understand as well is that at the time, uh, Senegal was also one of the only countries that had uh, a, a system in which you had two heads of states. Um, it was a, a I think in, in French you say bicephalous system uh, where you had the head of government and the head of state uh, and effectively the head of government had more power than the head of state and that was the case, Mamadou Dia had the effective power. 
Senghor had the prestige of being president head of state, but Mamadou actually was the one implementing the policy. And so months and months and months of internal dissensions of um, groups of sympathizers of Sango uh, seeing Dia and his sympathizers as a threat. And uh, we come to the, ninth, the, the 18th uh, of December when Mamadou Dia um, is accused of uh, uh, leading a coup d'etat against Senghor, uh, who whose sympathizers had tabled um, motion of no confidence. And so you have these back and forth regarding the constitution, since uh, the Senegalese Progressive Union is the only recognized political entity who has the final word is the constitution that was, uh, that is the mirror of the French Fifth Republic constitution. Is it the party? Is it the National Assembly? Um, and in the end, Senghor accuses Mamadou Dia and his sympathizers, um, four ministers, of attempting a coup d'etat. Um, while in effect, it is uh, more Sango who um, I would I would uh, reckon. Uh, so basically, just like what 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 eventually it plays out as a power play, but the right. the casualty of all of this is actually um, a kind of a certain kind of politics survives. Right. I mean, to, to Will's, I mean, maybe you could just quickly answer that part of Will's question, which is yeah. uh, Sangor and, and Maram spoke about this too. The division, the not the way of governing of Senghor then survives, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, af after 1962, you have Mamadou Dia and his four ministers being arrested, sent right. uh, for to Kidugu in, which is very arid, uh, dry region in the country in the in the southeast, uh, neighboring Mali. Um, and as of 1963, Senghor changed the constitution. He um, uh, erases the the position of prime minister, so he effectively becomes the sole person at the head of the state. And as of 1963, um, you know he dissolves political parties. Um, he incorporates a few years later one of the main opposition parties that becomes part of the government coalition. Um, and 1963 marks the beginning, really, of hyper presidentialism, based off of you know the French Fifth Constitution, constitution with uh, Charles de Gaulle being you know the kind of almost the Republican monarch. Um, and 1963 is the beginning of, of a very long history of hyper-presidentialism, um, which Senghor uh, embodies for a time, then Abdul Jouf, Ablaywad, probably the, 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 the best, and then now Makisal, uh, who's, who's uh, effectively you know, uh, almost eradicated all opposition, at least legally, even though there's, there's a lot of opposition. But yes, 1963 marks that, that era, and, and the ousting of Mamadou Dia is something that will be very recurrent later on. So before we bring back, before we bring back uh, Madame to, to, I have one other quick question. <laughs> Maybe we could like quickly do it. So I am curious as to, because this, this relates to, because we want to talk a little bit about um, the kind of vibrant tradition of protest that sort of runs concurrently to this way of governing. And the one moment, which I know you've written about also, and you've mentioned it before, is that is the murder of uh, uh, Omar Blondin Jupe. Uh, I'm probably messing up his name again. But as I understand it, his murder happens on the back of also a bunch of protests that starts, I think, in 68. Like, it's kind of the African version, if you want, of 68. Senegal, I think, Morocco, a couple of other places. Um, and the, the, his death is like the end of that, vision, of that kind of an alternative vision uh, for Senegal. Can you just say quickly, why was uh, Omar Blondin so dangerous, like, politically in Senegal? Because as we know, he never started a movement. 
he died very young. He's kind of a version of sort of a Senegalese Biko, but there was no mm -hmm. yeah. So can you just kind of like, what was it that was so dangerous about it that Senghor was like, we got to get rid of this guy? Or that, let me not personalize yeah. Senghor, but like if you want the Senghor state. Right. Um, so as you said, Umar and Job is part of this 1968 generation um, that had you know, liberation prospects throughout the world, um, supporting the anti-war movement in the States against the American war in Vietnam, supporting uh, Palestinian rights, uh, you know, supporting also authoritarian rules throughout Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, and so there was, it was this whole generation um, that, that had anti-imperialism, anti-racism, anti-authoritarianism as well as, as at, the, at the heart of the, of the protest. Um, Omar and Job is uh, kind of this meteor because he died in, 19, uh, in 1973, as you said. He was only 26 year old. Um, he was a student in philosophy. Um, he uh, partook in a few movements uh, linked to the European and then the, the Senegalese left, um, you know, inspired by Maoism, situationism. Um, he also was interested in Trotskyism, anarchism. And so he, he, he really, uh, frequented all of these black circles without really positioning himself truly as uh, one in, within one ideology or another. Um, and so in 1973, um, he, he died after being in prison in 1972 because in 1971, so two years before his death, uh, two of his brothers and comrades in Dakar were in prison for attempting an attack on Georges Pompidou, who was then president of uh, France while visiting in, in Dakar. Um, and Senghor really saw that as as uh, as an attack almost on him because attacking Georges Pompidou, who not only was the French president and therefore a close ally, but also a former classmate. You know, they had been classmates in the late 1920s in Paris. That that was that was a personal attack on him. And so Omar uh, Blondajoub decided to do this whole uh, odyssey, you know, to Syria and then to Algeria to to uh, train for mili for for military training. He was arrested in Bamako in 1972 extradited um, to uh, 1971 rather extradited to Senegal and then imprisoned and so fast forward to 1973 um, the repression in in prisons torture was a, was a reality you know uh, people were severely affected both um, physically and and uh, mentally and I I don't think that Sango um, personally ordered for Omar Bolajub to be killed um, but is the reality of torture in prison that killed him and him endorsing that system, you know, makes him also responsible for that. Um, to go to your question as to why was he so, um, uh, why, why he was so uh, dangerous, you know, because it's also a whole generation. Um, 1968 in Dakar uh, almost overthrew Senghor's regime, you know, Senghor uh, called upon the French army's support. He was in close correspondence with the French ambassador in Senegal. He also uh, suggested that the one of the top military uh, rank, uh, rank military men in in the uh, Senegalese military that he take he take that he takes power. Um, and so, 1968 and the generation that uh, Omar Bonajoub was part of um, represented a threat to his regime. And um, you know because he also had this this. Uh, this free way of considering politics. Uh, Omar Bonajop was very, um, had an aversion to authority and to power. He, I don't think that he would ever have uh, launched a, a true political career. Um, 
But Sangal saw him as a threat because most probably he also saw himself through Omar Boulanjo. You know, they both had uh, classical literary studies in France. Um, they both uh, were critical of the colonial paradise. Sangal opted for a, another type of policy when in power. Um, but Omar Boulanjo did represent that. Um, and final point also, you know, 19, the early 1970s was also a, a period of, of really uh, hard repression. You know, if, if you look back earlier in, in the year of 1973, <clears throat> you have the, the assassination of Amilcar Cabral. Um, you talked about Steve Biko also, but there, there is this, this major threat of um, philosophers, of thinkers who, in, who are able to put in action um, their theories, um, and Omar Bunajou was was part of them. I'd, I'd like to bring on Mahram now, um, if she's still around, to to be part of the conversation again, um, because it's interesting as we discuss all of this. It almost seems, if you think of the history of Senegal as almost a narrative, there seems to be this kind of tormented dance between, on the one hand, this political elite, which has more often than not this uh, advanced education and then assumes political office and takes on the role of enlightened leadership of the masses. And then you have on the other end, the masses, which as Florian, you were saying just now, are capable of articulating their demands for change in society. and key in these groups are, are young people and, and women. And Maharami, you were talking about earlier how the political class in, in Senegal is so quick to, to dismiss them. They have this open contempt of young people and women in society. And so there's this history of, in spite of this authoritarian streak that we've identified, which is a continuation into contemporary politics, you have this protest politics by these marginal groups in society. But we don't really hear much of that. And so I'm interested to hear from you, Mahram, how, how you think of this, this thread of, of, of protest politics in Senegal that's being led by young people and, and women and how that gets sidelined in our understanding of, of Senegalese political society. I think Senegal has a tendency to always loud itself as a place where there is freedom, as a place where there is teranga, there is hospitality, uh, and all of those good things, but it doesn't apply to certain groups, especially women. It still remains a very patriarchal country. It still remains a, a country where women are put on the sidelines. It still remains a place where they voted a parity law in 2010, but it has yet to be applied the way that it should have been applied. Uh, women continue to be uh, viewed as objects. Women continue to be viewed as less intelligent. Women continue to be viewed as children that needs the patronage of men to do certain things, even though our laws, Senegalese laws, seem to be very progressive. When you look at it on the paper, Senegal has ratified every kind of convention uh, from the United Nations to everywhere when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to implementing it and then putting structures and, and infrastructure that actually apply that and makes it efficient for women, it's not doing that. As a matter of fact, there is feminicide happening in Senegal throughout. Women are dying every single day. They're finding a woman who has been kidnapped or abducted and then killed. Recently, there was even a Congolese woman who was in the streets of Dakar and there was like a peaceful protest. So um, 
if we look at how Senegal is lauded as a democracy, and then you look at the marginal spaces that women occupy and the young people occupy, there is a big clash in those two, uh, those two worlds. So literally, the Sen Senegal is a, a country of men, uh, Muslim men of a certain age, so to say. Uh, the teranga that we are talking about doesn't apply to women, doesn't apply to young people. It's not extended to women. Women extend teranga to everybody else, but they are not the recipient of that teranga. I have a I have a follow up uh, on this, um, and I wanna I wanna sort of connect it to the the way France plays a role looming in the background against us. So you know, if, if Senegal is is a patriarchal society, if you identified Maham, when we think of France's colonial model, it was a patriarchal model insofar as France was this patriarch and its colonial subjects were these children that it had to civilize in the ways of modernity. So this sort of persistence of, of patriarchy, not only patriarchy as as understood of this idea of dominance by by men of women, but this mm -hmm. idea that you know Senegal is a society that really belongs to these to these big men, these philosopher kings who 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 yeah. exist to to sort of govern also, on the but also the way in which it sounds like it's also the way in which uh, following Florian, the way in which Senegal basically copies uh, kind of the way that France governs itself. Like, oh, we're going to have a certain exactly. form of presidency. Uh, uh, if so, so Senghor is like the goal, or like you said, in France, they have that idea of the prime minister and the president, different, the different kind of, you know, Josma, I, I'm trying to remember that time, you know, like, in the 90s and the 80s, I, I was reading the newspaper and I'm like, hold up, who's this guy who's the prime minister with some of this power? And you sort of this, what you're kind of describing is Senghor ran into the problem with that. And was like, oh, I'm gonna try to be the goal. So there's like, there's there's definitely like, like to, 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 to Will's point, there's a way in which what, what Senegal is doing is not entirely, you know, oh, it's mystical and it's, it's homegrown and it's traditional. At some level, it's also it's it's implicated in a kind of larger imperial project. Yeah, I mean a lot of the protests, right? Also against, I understand a lot of the protests now in March was also against French businesses. Yeah, um, I think when it comes to to, to especially to women, and I'll, I'll go back to to the, the French uh, uh, literally um, infantilizing of 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 of. of its former African colonies, literally, where they actually are children that mimic their fathers, whatever their father they have to do. When it comes to women, we see how uh, this ties to the coloniality of power, the coloniality of gender, and how the way that Senegal and many of the uh, former French colonies treat their women is really a mirror image of how uh, of French patriarchy. But at the same time, in the case of Senegal, it is also Islamic patriarchy or a perception of Islamic patriarchy and a perception of a certain African patriarchy. Because usually uh, we have said, well, this we're told this is what, what used to happen now, communities. But that is not true because these communities have actually uh, been through French colonization, they've been through Arab colonization in through Islam to the point that what we are 
is an amalgamation of so many things. And then women are caught in the middle when we are told that this is how women used to be, but that's not true. When we look at African cultures, this is not how women were treated. So you see how Senegal treats its women is it is really the same way that French has treated its women and also the same way that French has treated its colonies in Africa. So there is this, this, this um, paternalism that we see when it comes to the relationship between France and Senegal, where Senegal copies everything that France does and then wants to apply the same paternalism on women when it comes to women's freedoms, women's um, right to, to, to um, have a voice or to be treated as citizens of the country because they sit at the margins the same way that the young people also sit at the margin when it comes to main decisions. Florian, do you want to add anything? Um, yes, so if you take a historical point of view regarding uh, the marginalization and, and the uh, silencing of women in political struggles. It's also the case in, in liberation struggles from the 1960s, even 50s up to the 1970s, which is the, the, the era I study. Um, we're talking about state violence. Um, I first got into uh, this period through liberation struggles, and so we could talk a lot more about the ways that you know, Senegalese youth organized themselves um, and not just put the focus on the way that they were repressed. Because I think that if we only put forward the way that Senegal's regime uh, tried to silence the youth, then it doesn't do justice to also um, the the uh, aspiration of freedom and also the, uh, you know, the ingenuity in which these movements also structured themselves amid a very uh, uh, hard uh, political context but within these struggles there are also very many women and you know they are not recognized uh, as much as they should be um you know uh, whether it's uh, in the parti africain l'indépendance du pays so the independence african party uh, you know uh, figures like awage uh, chumbesom uh, caroline fajop um then later in in more leftist leaning revolutionary youth uh, youth led movements uh, marian dem from from the front culturel senegalais you know rhaed abafal maritou djumjop like you have this long list of, of very many act uh, active women uh, uh, um eugenie Ao as well um but they're not they're not put forward they're not recognized um and i think that there's also in historical uh, research and historical transmission, also this necessity to understand that liberation struggles and revolution cannot just be equated to masculinity and um, mm -hmm. to this idea that you know revolution can only be undertaken by men, um, because historically it hasn't. It hasn't been the case, and, and it still isn't today. Um, so I think that that that's that's important to to also acknowledge. Mm -hmm. I, I have one other I have one other question then, which is which is makes those linkages between France and Senegal and those linkages about maybe other kinds of movements that can push things a little further. Florian, you've written about this movement called Faiderbe, uh, Faiderbe must fall, or I don't know how you say his name. He was a French uh, colonial general, um, and, and there's a movement to, to remove statues in his, that was in his honor. Does that, is that a movement that is that is so. If you look at if you look at those must fall movements in South Africa, in the U in the UK, in the US, with uh, with Black Lives Matter and so on, many of these movements they make those connections between imperialism, patriarchy, especially patriarchy, uh, you know, uh, gender, sexuality, and capitalist oppression. 
is something like Fiderbe, does it point to something like that? Like in, in its in its connection, making the connections with France, making the connections around imperialism, colonialism, etc. But does it also make these other kinds of connections around the, the position of women and the position of young people? Um, I, you can answer this. No, I, I, I wouldn't be able. To. <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't confirm that, to be honest. Um, I know that Fidel must fall, Fidel de Tombe, which was a, a campaign that's been launched uh, for several years now. Um, we can make connections uh, between that movement and, um, you know, revolutionary movements like that. Uh, 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 Maram talked earlier about Guimari Sanya, who's at the head of, of a movement called Frappe. Um, so it's a movement for a pan-African uh, anti-imperialist and popular revolution. They're members of that movement that are also part of this Fed of Musfell movement. Um, and so we see clear connection between you know, wanting to regain one's sovereignty and wanting to uh, deboot anti-imperialist uh, interests and you know how uh, uh, figures such as Fedelb um, represent that you know because Fedelb was, was one of the main colonialists uh, who who was at the head of, of a colonial uh, enterprise that killed thousands of Senegalese people you know he he, he massively um, set fire to villages and he he instored this this rule of terror and so still recognizing that he is uh, a person that deserves to be put forward in in the public uh, space you know is is for many people uh, a very uh, an insult to to one's sovereignty um and beyond fidel uh, mosfo you know there's also a campaign which uh, uh, members of uh, the frap movement had partaken in uh, which was to protest against um, a, a, a central place on Gouri Island, you know, which which was a central component of the European slave trade uh, that uh, honored uh, Europe through the name of uh, the Europe Place Square, um, which was later renamed. So, you know, there's this whole movement to regain sovereignty against imperialist interests that uh, aim at, um, you know, uh, getting rid of these symbols uh, of imperialism. Uh, however, I'm not able to really connect them necessarily to uh, feminist struggles or uh, to wider issues, um, maybe, yeah, may, maybe, but I, I can't confirm that. So, I mean, I mean, I know we we want to conclude, but you mentioned this organization, Khrab, and I'd like to hear from both of you. When we think of Senegal and the fact that the political crisis is going to keep continuing, and we've problematized Usman Sonko and the Sonkoists, and we've spoken about Yene Ma, we've spoken about M23, in the future, if you were holding a crystal ball, that movement which tries to connect all of these issues and mounts a serious challenge to the political class in Senegal, where do you think it's going to come from? That's a difficult question. I'm going to speak from a pro-feminist perspective. Um, I think that until Senegal recognizes the role that women can play in not only political leadership, but in terms of designing the trajectory of the country, being involved at all levels, I think we're going to have, these things are going to continue. I'm saying this because I don't know how many of you are following the Senegalese media sphere, especially on social media, you see that women are doing so many great things. 
but not being recognized. And uh, there is no backing away or going back to uh, women sitting on the sidelines. They're going to take what is theirs, whether people like it or not. So you see that if you follow, for example, uh, feminist activists on, on, um, on social media, you see that they are being attacked left and right and being denied the right to speak not only by um, just regular people on, on social media, but also even when they start uh, to occupy the, 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 the national media, there is a harsh backlash. So until women are given the spaces to say what they have to say, but also given responsibilities and given uh, the opportunities to um, apply for certain jobs to be um, in political leadership, I think we're still going to um, see these kind of issues because you cannot run a country uh, by uh, stifling the voices of 51% of the population, which is the number for Senegal in terms of women. Florian? Yeah, um, well, to, to extend that, obviously, um, putting as a central uh, core component of decision-taking and everyday life is, is respecting women's rights. Um, as an extension to that, I think that it's important also um, for uh, movements, whether they be in the political arena or not, and you know, FRAP among others are doing this, um, to massify and to speak more to um, uh, people who don't necessarily speak French, uh, who are not necessarily interested because they've been disenfranchised for so long, namely the youth, um, and and I think that there's 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 a lot to you know to to, to continue to do on that level. Um, also, one one's core component is is showing the example um, at the top, and right now, you know, um, whether it be it corruption, whether it be it. Um, uh, political decisions that are not taken in the interest of the Senegalese people. Um, when example is not given at, at the top, many people are like, ah, well, what to do now? Um, if if uh, uh, what is seen at the top is uh, politicians going from one party to another, uh, is, uh, you know, presidents uh, being accompanied with 40 cars in their motorcades uh, for a simple visit within a province when it's these these uh, financial uh, scandals such as that of Petrochim a few years ago when where you have the uh, president's brother who's involved in this multi-billion uh, case linking uh, a company a pet uh, company uh, dealing with oil and bp british petroleum when examples not given at the top obviously um, and people are disenfranchised um you know, there's, there's a disinterest in politics and um, also when the majority is, is, is um, kept into precarity and into poverty, into mass poverty, unemployment, lack of prospects after you leave university and school, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to see a way out of there. Um, and uh, finally, uh, there's also a necessity, I, I think, and, and this many people talk about, to rethink structures. You know, this goes beyond Senegal, but uh, as of the 1960s, when um, the political borders were uh, state was stayed intact, uh, those that were uh, 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 drawn, if we want to say it broadly, um, at the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, um, when um, you know these French interests and foreign interests, and it's not just France, but obviously France has a massive stronghold over 
all sectors of the economy and and more broadly on politics on culture um it's a whole framework that's i th i think to be rethinked or rethought rather um and starting with the way that you know uh the state works um how the position of president gives almost immunity and allows for people to uh to continue their their actions being uh unpunished um you know 13 people were killed in the protests in march and there's no one no one has been heard no one has been um uh has has, has gone any sentence for that um and so there's there's a broader reflection um around the fidel musfo campaign around all these symbols and and the praxis of of um imperialist structures that continue to to um uh play in in the way that the senegalese state works and therefore in the way that the nation also uh, exists. I think I'm saying, oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Well, No, go ahead, because I was going to connect it to, to closing out the show, but... Oh, no, I, mean, I close out. I just thought, I think to go back to something you said at the beginning of the show, when you celebrated the events in uh, Peru, and especially in Chile, I think what's fascinating about Chile, Chile is a very socially conservative society. It was governed by... Uh, for a long period, right, by an authoritarian form of regime. It came up post that period with a kind of very uh, watered-down constitution. But now, to, to go to Maram's point about about uh, sort of new kind of feminist politics, uh, in the last elections now, the mayor of Santiago is a feminist communist. The This is in a very conservative society. The go regional gover governor of that, of that region is also a feminist who got elected. And for the new constitution that they're drafting, uh, there is parity in the representation of women equal to that of men on that on that drafting uh, uh, body. So, you know, again, to Will's point earlier at the beginning of the show, and this is a nice way to end it before Will speaks, is I think it really shows us again, maybe we should be looking over there. We should be, we should be looking as Florence point, look away from France if we want to rethink these models, not just in Senegal, but we should, I think we should be looking way more and more to South America for these kind of bold experiments and not be afraid that they're going to fail because I think this is the problem. Look at South America and what they're up against. And if they don't live up to it in a perfect way to what people are doing and watching it from the North, then we think it's failed. But that doesn't say we can't try. And I feel like South America shows us that you can that you can invent new kind of politics, especially radical feminist politics in this case. I think Cape Verde is also trying to do that in West Africa. We look at we look at Cape Verde. Yeah, we didn't even get <laughs> it. That's for us. I think we look at Rwanda too. I mean, we have lots of models, I think. Yeah, we haven't even, we gotten, we haven't even gotten into diasporas, the role of the diaspora. Uh, I, think, I think in Senegal, the diaspora can vote, right? And have representation. Yes. I'd be curious as yeah. to what kind of role they play in imagining a new kind of political system that is not this one that, you know, keeps perpetuating certain kinds of power. I would be I, curious, especially since you're in... I think, think, think Usman Sonko has a big following uh, in the diaspora. Um, I think lots of diaspora people are backing Usman Sonko. So it would be interesting to see. The diaspora does play a big clout in Senegal, especially economically. So I wonder now how that's going to translate to political um, power. It will be interesting mm -hmm. to see. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting. We think of Chile constitution writing from where I am, South Africa, which had a very similar kind of thorough, comprehensive constitution writing process in the 90s, but still beset by many of the problems that Senegal is also beset by all of these other issues of needing to massify, needing to be rooted in 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 popular struggle still sort of permeate. But I think there's so much to, to to say and we'll we'll do our best to try and and sort of exhibit a lot of the resources that you're referring to uh so people can keep informed about what's happening in senegal but until then absolutely agree with florian that we need to rethink colonially imposed boundaries it's time for africa to finally be a country um but until then <laughs> Stay, I, stay want credit credit happens, I want credit for that. I want credit <laughs> for that. Finally, I would, that, that was my... You definitely will. That was my gift to the world. You definitely should get credit for that. You should get credit for that. <laughs> when that happens, Sean will take credit. But until then, Finally, I will us. get some stay. credit for something. It will be like a <laughs> moment. Oh, my God. I've never had credit for something. Oh but this will be my moment. Hopefully in our lifetimes. Hopefully my lifetime. <laughs> That will be my negative. That will be my negative. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but thank you so much for watching. From from me, William Shockey, to my co-host Sean Jacobs, who will hopefully one day have his moment. To our wonderful ah. guests, Maram Gay and Florian Bobin, and as always, our excellent producer Antoinette Engel. Uh, a reminder: if you enjoy our work, if you enjoy what we're doing, please hit the like and subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook, as well as Instagram and we'll keep bringing you more excellent minds from the continent so that we can hear more uh, about why Africa should be a country. But until then, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>